Kelsey, in the library, what's the one kind of story that we get asked for almost on a daily basis? Hmm. I'd probably have to say a good mystery. Absolutely. And yet that can mean so many different things to readers. So prior to my arrival here at the Sioux City Public Library, Open Book Club read Alan Eskin's debut novel, The Life We Bury. Since then, his writing and books have popped up in our book discussions on multiple occasions. So much so that I knew I had to carve out time to read one, which turned into many. (laughs) I get it now. Our patrons appreciate mysteries with intricate plots and authentic, complex characters, and each one of Alan's mysteries delivers that in spades. Alan Eskins is the best-selling author of The Life We Bury, The Guise of Another, The Heavens May Fall, The Deep Dark Descending, The Shadows We Hide, Nothing More Dangerous, and The Stolen Hours. He is the recipient of the Barry Award, Minnesota Book Award, Rosebud Award, and Silver Falchion Award. Alan has a journalism degree from the University of Minnesota and a law degree from Hamlin University. After law school, he studied creative writing in the MFA program at Minnesota State University, Mankato. Alan grew up in the hills of central Missouri. He now lives with his wife, Jolie, in greater Minnesota, where he recently retired after practicing criminal law for 25 years. Welcome to the first 50 pages, Alan. I am currently um, just about 50 pages in to Nothing More Dangerous. And one of the things that I have picked up through the story is the secondary characters, you lead us to want to know more about them. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, you know, there's something more interesting about this person's life. I hope so. Yeah. And, and And that's really kind of the springboard for how I take a secondary character and, and move on with them to make them a, a main character is when I write a novel, I'm one of those people that will do biographies for my characters. Um, and the exercise of doing the biography is really secondary because the biography is already in my head. When I write a character, I know as much about them as I can, you know, where they grew up, who their parents were, what their home life was like, what, you know, because the, the more I know about them, the more I know how they're going to act and react within a scene. And also, the more I know about them, the the more rounded I can make their character in a story. I guess personally, like as one of your readers, I love that you do that because I feel like a lot of other authors, you don't you fall in love with these secondary characters, but you don't necessarily get the chance to learn more about them. Everybody it feels like they are the main character in their life's story, but all the people around them have their own life story that is hidden that as an author, I want to look at that person and say, I'm going to tell your story now and bring this out to the world. If you've read the life for Barry and then you read the stolen hours, you will, you will see the, you will see Lila's backstory from two different points in time in two different perspectives. Cause the first perspective is Joe learning about her backstory. The stolen hours is the reader now learning the true depth of that backstory. So there's, there is a depth to it if you read them in order, but they're standalone, so you don't have to. Well, you basically answered my next question, because <laughs> since I'm in the middle of Nothing More Dangerous, now my question is, how would you recommend that we read your books? So basically, what I'm hearing is start with The Life We Bury. But if you don't start with The Life We Bury, go back and read The Life We Bury before you read the other ones. Do, and it sounds like you don't have to read these novels in order of their publication date. That is correct. You don't have to. If you do, it's a richer experience. Um, I have on my website, alaneskins.com, 
kind of instructions <laughs> how to read my books. It's just kind of a map because this this does come up. People, you know, they they don't know where to start and and whether they have to read from the beginning, but uh, you really don't. And nothing more dangerous, which is the prequel. That's a true standalone. Um, the character is Bodhi Sandin, who this is his story when he was 15 years old back in 1976. In the life we bury, he's a grown-up. He's a, an adult professor, um, law professor. And so when you read the um, Nothing More Dangerous, you understand what made Bodhi, but it's really my most true standalone novel. Well, since we're talking about Nothing More Dangerous, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. And, you know, this is a story that focuses on racism and combating prejudices from where you know you grow up. And you don't shy away from writing challenging and issue-oriented storylines. The Kirkus Reviews starred review, well, called The Stolen Hours, which was your next book, right? A rousing legal thriller that's also an acute study of female victimization and male privilege. So, you know, you definitely dive into challenging subjects in your writing. You've mentioned that nothing more dangerous in a previous interview took you many years to complete. Um, I'm curious, could you talk about um, how the story or your perspectives change for you over the course of the time that you were writing the book? So, so in 1992, I'd just gotten out of law school. And this is that eureka moment when I realized that I wanted to try writing something. So I wrote a short story about a 15-year-old boy. And I liked the story that I wrote, but I didn't know anything about writing. So I started reading these books, like I said, and I started adding to this short story, making it longer and longer. And pretty soon I had a full-length manuscript. And I worked on that manuscript for 20 years. That was my learning manuscript. Every time I took a class, I would come home and, and try and incorporate what I learned into this manuscript. And after 20 years, it was not ready. It was, it was a jumble of things. So I put it aside, wrote The Life We Bury, wrote the three books for Max Rupert, wrote The Shadows We Hide. Then I went back and without looking at that previous manuscript, you know, I knew this story backward and forward because I'd been working on it for 20 years. I outlined it and wrote it from scratch. And I wrote it from scratch because I didn't want my previous mistakes to impede me. Um, sometimes you look at a page or a paragraph and you think that's good and you move on. When really what you should do is look at it and say, is it really good? You know, is that the best I can do? Um, and so by writing it from scratch, I wasn't settling on things that I had written back when I wasn't as good of a writer as I believe I am today. So I, I rewrote it. Um, and it, it was a story that was very personal to me. Um, it was the, the arc of a young man, 15 years old, who believes that he doesn't have a prejudiced bone in his body. However, he grows up in a, in a society, in a world, you know, south, mid to southern Missouri um, in the 1970s, that it, you can't help but be swayed by the, the the community around you, the society around you. And when a black family moves in across the road from him, he starts to see the world through the eyes of this you know, black boy who 
he befriended who lived across the road from him. And he starts to see how all these things that he thought were harmless and no big deal and that they weren't prejudiced were, at the end of the day, they were based on racism. And so it, it is a mystery. It, there's a lot of moving parts to that novel. Um, there's a, a mentor character named Hoke who lives next door who has his own wonderful backstory that that really takes over the last third of the novel. Um, but it, it was a joy to finally see that come to print and be put in stores. Talk, you know, when we talk, you've talked a little bit about your writing process and your writing style. Um, so, of course, you know, we kind of want to dive a little bit more into that. Um, are there strategies that you've found that like work best for you? You talk about outlining a lot. Would you mind kind of sharing a little bit more about that? For someone who is starting out as a writer, whether you think you should or not, you should. Because <laughs> if you sit down and you have this roadmap already there, now you can just go back and rely upon your techniques. So you have the roadmap, that's your outline. Now you're going to drive the drive. You're going to describe what you see and you're going to give the emotion and all that as you're driving. And you use your, your craft and technique to, to make really wonderful paragraphs and chapters. And you don't have to worry about what happens next because you know what happens next. And as you're driving that drive, if something comes to you and think, you know, that might be a better way to go. I step back and I, I say, okay, if I do this turn here, that's not in my outline, how is that going to affect everything? So I re-outline with that new turn in there to see where the ripples hit. And if I like it better, I, I make that change. So I don't, I'm not wedded to my outline, but it is a comfort to have that there as you're writing. You know, up to this point in your writing career, have published about one book each year. Would you say that's about right? Like, yeah, one book. With exception of last year, I didn't have a book come out, which was a uh, with COVID. There was it was probably a good year to skip, but uh, yeah, at one book a year since 2014, wow. except for last year. Being in the library, we see lots of authors who churn out lots of books, and kind of the feedback that we get from readers is that their stories become diluted and that they're not as good. They don't enjoy them as much. Do you think, think that that's... just being able to focus on that one book a year that you're doing gives you a better product overall? I, I don't want to say it's a better product compared to others, but at the same time, it's very important to me that I, I, I don't want to do more than one a year simply because this goes back to theater. Um, in theater, I studied improv. And one of the things about improv is coming up with the more creative idea. So um, your first thought out of the gate is usually something that everybody thinks of. Second idea, same thing. Third, you're getting a little more creative. When you get to the fourth, fifth, sixth level of, of ideas, now this is stuff that is new. It's, it's stuff that, that hasn't been done before. And as, you're, as I'm writing, I don't want to rush myself because what will happen is I will put down the first thing that comes to my head, which is usually not the most creative or evocative way of doing it. So by giving myself that year of time, um, I can focus on paragraphs and chapters for a while you know, and, and take my time with it. And that works for me. And that's what readers want, right? Like good mystery readers, they want memorable reads. And the thing about mysteries and thrillers and, and action is 
a lot of people think that what they want is the twists and turns in the action. Um, but they don't realize that the reason the twists and the turns in the action are memorable and, and important was because the characters really meant something to them. And to give an example, um, Die Hard, the first Die Hard movie. <laughs> yeah. I loved it. I thought it was great. Second, third, fourth, I don't know how. They, they focused on the action. If you go back and look at the first Die Hard, the first Die Hard was a love story. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a guy who was just a normal Joe overcoming tremendous crucible uh, to save his wife. Uh, again, sorry, spoiler alert if you haven't seen Die Hard. Um, <laughs> hasn't seen Die Hard. Yeah. <laughs> but, but the reason that the, the sequels never matched the original was because they shifted from the love story and the, the character story to just action. And that was a mistake. And so I, I don't want to make that mistake where my twists and turns are the thing that I, I want you to, um, that, that I think are the most important. Because if you don't care about the characters, you're not going to care if they, if, you know, my protagonist gets into a fight. I, I was actually reading a novel um, and the protagonist got into a fight and I found myself saying, and I just hope you die because I don't care about you. <laughs> um and it would make this story so much so much better if you if you lost this fight. Um, but yeah, you you need to care about the characters, otherwise none of the rest of it matters. And we've kind of touched on Lila briefly, but for readers uh, who might not be familiar with her story, could you tell um, us a little bit about her and your latest book, The Stolen Hours? Sure. So in the life we bury, uh, she is Joe Talbert's neighbor. They're both in college. And Joe wants to date her, but she is standoffish. She doesn't want to date him. But the reason she doesn't want to date him isn't because she doesn't like him. It's because something happened to her in her past and she has built a wall. And that that trauma that happened to her in, in her past is examined further in the sequel, uh, The Shadows We Hide. But again, both of those novels, Lila is a secondary character and you see this event this trauma that happened to her in her past through joe's joe's perception of it uh now in the stolen hours she we get to see it through her perspective and it's about her finally finding the strength to look into what happened to her when she was in high school and trying to find the person that harmed her and so it's about her you know the character story is about her uncovering what happened to her the thriller story is she is um out of uh, law school she's taking the bar exam she's waiting for her results she's working as a uh, hennepin county assistant attorney prosecuting cases in minneapolis now as she hasn't passed the bar yet she's not officially an attorney but this she's working with an attorney another attorney supervisor and a case crosses her path um that catches her attention and and affects her. And she digs into that case and she wants to bring this person to justice. And it all ties into what happened to her in her past. And Lila is your first female protagonist. How is writing her story in The Stolen Hours different from the other mystery novels that you've written? Uh, Scary. (laughs) (laughs) 
I, I have read female protagonists written by male authors that I thought were atrocious. Um, and I sure, I'm sure women thought they were atrocious. And so I wanted to not make those kind of mistakes. So um, I spent a couple of years reading a steady diet of fem- good female writers writing good female protagonists. And then I would throw in every now and again a male writer writing a female protagonist to compare and see you know, what the differences were. Um, and I wanted very much not to to make those mistakes that I saw other male authors doing. And that Kirkus review that you read, that is the kind of thing that really validates that effort. Um, when they, they talk about, I've created a story with a lot of important female, I can't remember the, the words. That yeah, a they rousing use, but... legal thriller that's also an acute study of female victimization and male privilege. And we've talked before, yeah. Kirkus is rough. Yeah. On, on, you know, they... So when you get a glowing review from them or like they really like dig into like what you're trying to get across, then it's like, yes. Yeah. And, and when, when I read that review, it's like, good. You know, they they saw what I was trying to do. I, I was trying to to show this from a as if I, that I were a woman writing this story. And uh, I did my best to delve into a woman's shoes before taking this on. And I think it's uh, really interesting and really um, cool that you have, you know, not only written Lila in such a way that, you know, she's very powerful for readers, but that you have this like secondary cast of strong female characters within the story, you know, that you have Detective Vang and Prosecutor Andy Fitch and, you know, that there's just these other strong female women within the story as well that... We don't just have the protagonist, but we have, you know, strong female secondary characters as well. And one of the things that I saw some male authors do is they would have a really good female character, but in the end, a male would save them or it would be, you know, the, the a male mentor or, or, you know, somehow it was the man who stepped in and, and took care of things. And I was going to avoid that with every ounce of my being <laughs> so uh, I, I even go as far as to have joe talbert the Lila's boyfriend get called away on an assignment so he's not even in town mm-hmm. um for part of the novel because i don't if, if he's there the reader's going to want him to step in and help or some readers are i don't want that this is lila's story and this is you know Lila's the, the the hero here so we've kind of touched on how you approach you know when you wanted to start writing Lila as a female character that you did a ton of like reading to really like study up and learn your craft and to kind of get your creative juices flowing, make sure that, you know, you're approaching this in the right way. But if you do get the chance to read for pleasure, what do you read? Do you have a go-to author? Do you try to read books in the same genre in which you write? Um, I honestly don't read for pleasure. (laughs) Um, That. I think that's one of the things about being a writer and for me, at least um, I, when I read something, I am taking it apart. I'm reverse engineering it. And so what I read is what I think will inform my next novel. So after finishing the stolen hours, my next novel takes place in the country up in Northern Minnesota, the boundary water canoe area, um, that area. Mm -hmm. And so I'm reading Longmire. I'm reading Tom Franklin. I'm reading No Country for Old Men. I'm reading books that that are country based and and you know 
Clint Eastwood kind of character based, that kind of thing, because I want to soak that in as I'm writing the story. Um, the next novel that I'm doing is going to have a, a little more of a family drama to it. So uh, the last book I read was uh, um, Lane Moriarty. Um, so I'm reading books that have more of a family drama in it, in it to see how other authors handle it. And, and again, reverse engineer the things that I think work and and avoid the things that I think don't work. So can you tell us which character gets the next story? Is that something? Yeah, so Ma- Max Rupert, his book will be coming out next year. Um, I've already submitted it to my editor. We're working on the revisions now. Um, it's, it is called oh, For- Forsaken Country. Okay. Um, again, it's country-based. Uh, it's Forsaken Country. So if you've read the you know, Guys of Another, The Heavens May Fall, The Deep Dark Descending, there's an arc there where Max has to face his darkest nature. And at the end of The Deep Dark Descending, he goes to stand in a corner, basically. Uh, he's in a cabin up north. And three and a half years later now, I'm going back to visit him. And he hasn't cut his hair. He hasn't shaved. He's living kind of like a hermit up there. And something happens to bring him back into the world. Um, the book I'm outlining that I'm going to start writing in January is for Bodhi Sandin as an adult. Um, it'll be a, a legal thriller because he runs the Innocence Project, but it's going to have a component where the person that he's his client is actually in the security hospital, um, mentally ill and dangerous, having allegedly killed somebody. And so that's the one that I'm outlining now. And then the one that just popped into my head is another story for Joe uh, and Lila. So it, there's always two or three stories circulating in my head at any given moment, but um, I try and put them all aside and focus on one at a time as I'm writing them. So readers have a lot to look forward to. No, I'm like right, trying yeah, to like write get, it all down. Like, okay, like what ones do I have to be on the lookout for? And I, I get emails and, and you know Facebook and, and messages from people saying, hurry up and write the next Max novel or hurry up and write the next Joe novel. It's like Those readers are years. so <laughs> demanding, aren't <laughs> they? The they, they want so much, right? But this and, would be the advantage for people coming to your stories late. Then they'll have seven books to read. Yeah. Right. Um, so yeah, when, when The Life of Barry first came out and they were, oh, we want more, we want more. It's like, I have to write another one yeah. first. You're like, no, no you, you got some other ones to tie you there. Go read those first and then come back and I'll have one for you. Yeah, and we don't want you to dilute your stories. No. We want you to create these memorable characters, um, you know, beautiful descriptions of place, and um, you know all the things that draw us in to your stories. And have we heard well, it right you. that you are dabbling in screenwriting? I am dabbling, um, <laughs> which means that I, I'm studying it on the side just for the fun of it. Um, I, I've written some stuff and because i have an agent i've given it to my agent whether it goes beyond that is you know i don't know i'm just gonna i'll write something give it to my agent go back to writing my novels and if something happens it happens if it doesn't it doesn't but it's it's a different medium and it's fun to to try and understand storytelling from as many perspectives as possible you know i grew up i cut my teeth in theater um, I'm a novelist now, but you know, 
writing screenplays is a very different beast in a lot in a lot of ways it's the same in terms of the storytelling the importance of character and character development and arcs but on the other hand it's a visual medium and so where i'm describing how the kitchen smells when max walks into the kitchen you don't see that you don't have that from the screen you you can't smell so it's a very and it's dialogue based you know, you have a you have a, a log a little tagline saying here's where the scene is here's what the scene looks like boom now let's go into the dialogue and uh, it's teaching me a lot about uh, writing better dialogue i think so it's i'm always trying to learn and grow we have talked with a few other um authors and one of the interesting things that have we've touched on before is the immediate feedback that you get from your audience as an actor you know, for like theater, but you don't get that necessarily, you know, as an author, you just put your work out there. Yeah, there's a, that moment of adulation where the audience is applauding. Um, that never, you never get over that. I don't think, I never did. Uh, you know, whether it's in the middle of, of a show where you hear a, a roar of laughter because of something you did, or at the end of the show where you, you step out to take your bow, um, that's a that's a real high it really is uh that you don't get from writing um now being nominated and receiving awards that's about a, that's about as close of a comparison as i can get so when you when they announce your name at that award ceremony and you walk up to receive your award that's a wonderful high as well but it's um at the same time it's different because you're competing with other people and you think well, you know they called my name and not yours, but man, you wrote a good book and it's just not fair. So we're in theater. Everybody gets applauded. So it's, <laughs> it's I have one, just one more thought to share with you, Alan, is that, you know, Kelsey and I work a public desk in a public library. And so mm-hmm. for some immediate feedback to you, we know that a book has really resonated with the reader when they come to the desk and they say, what's next? I need the next book. I, you know, and that's, or does this author have anything else? Like they bring it up to us and they're like, okay, I finished this. Now I'm going to need something else (laughs) for that same author. And and I will tell you that we, we get that a lot Mm -hmm. when people, you know, are reading your books. They'll be like, what's next? What else is there? You know, they just, oh, that's good to hear. Yeah. Well, we have really enjoyed talking with you today, Alan. Thank you for yeah, thank being you so much. our guest on the first thank 50 you. pages. Uh, is, is there a, a bookstore there in Siouxland? Yeah. yeah. I try and support local book, um, bookstores as much as I can. And this year in particular, there's going to be issues with supply chain for books. Mm-hmm. So if people want books for Christmas, they should uh, start seeking them out pretty soon. But yeah. Um, Anything that, that will help the local local bookstores, I, I try and support. For listeners who are interested in getting copies of Alan Eskin's books, you can find those at Book People, located in Sioux City.